Well, I trust you have your Bibles and that you will open them to a passage that I am drawn back to anytime there's a difficult circumstance in my own life personally. It's also a passage that we've turned to several times over the course of the last nine years in our uh, study of God's Word. Lamentations chapter 3, the book of Lamentations chapter 3, right after Jeremiah and before Ezekiel. There's a little book tucked in there which has so much dense theology for a time and a day like the one we're experiencing. Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to isolate our attention uh, in verses 37 through 40, although we'll expand out beyond that. Let's just read those to set our minds on target. Lamentations chapter 3. Verse 37, the prophet asks, Who is there who speaks? And it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways, and let us return to the Lord. These are trying days. This is a unique time. The coronavirus has stolen the attention of the world. Almost everyone on the planet has focused on or thought about this spreading virus in the last few days and weeks. And let me admit it, I I have not seen anything like this in terms of a mass understanding and a mass hysteria in my own lifetime. The coronavirus has very really affected everyone. Mass hysteria runs on grocery stores, people coming literally to blows. I saw a video over face masks, government even banning public gatherings of crowds, all leads to the reality that every one of us has a heartfelt response to this trial. We all have a perspective on this with which we must reckon. The responses to this virus are wide-ranging and almost bounce like a ping-pong game back and forth hour to hour hour as you watch the news. I've, I've heard some experts In the last 24 hours, say, there is nothing to worry about. This is only the flu. Others, though, have compared it to the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages and say, the world will never be the same again after this pandemic. I think we can all hear in those two responses an overreaction and an underreaction Uh, Both of these extremes can lead to wrong-headed and misguided reflexes to this pandemic. And I think both extremes of over- and under-reacting are unbiblical responses to this trial that we've all found ourselves in. And add to this the fact that the situation really is changing hourly. Um, uh, We were uh, gathered with a group of men and women yesterday morning. Uh, that uh, we gathered in a room, elders and uh, deacons and our pastors and uh, doctors and uh, healthcare officials, all to kind of pool our wisdom to see what the best response for our church might be in this season and during this crisis. And it was interesting that the, the information we had yesterday morning had actually changed by the afternoon. I think we can expect it to keep changing over the course of the next week and weeks. It's a unique time for us, though, not as humans on the planet experiencing this trial, but it's it's a unique time for those of us who know the Savior, for those of us who know Christ, who are Christians, to respond and be stewards of the gospel in a time and in a place for which you and I have been created and equipped. The question before us this morning as saints, is how are we to respond to this trial, to this societal pandemic? And I think that we come to God's Word to receive comfort and counsel. Comfort for knowing who God is, what He's like, that He's in control, and counsel for how to respond both publicly and privately in our heart to this trial. Can I remind you, this is not the first time that the Church of Jesus Christ has 
found herself in a societal difficulty. Christ church has survived and flourished during times of plagues, pestilence, floods, earthquakes, droughts, and most notably, if you look in the New Testament and even reaching back into the Older Testament, times of leprosy. God is not surprised by this. God has never, think about this, He's never had one moment of surprise in His eternal existence. And the coronavirus will not be the last societal trial that we face, nor I, I beg to think the last pandemic our world will encounter. Scripture assures us that we will face difficulties and we will face trials. We have been so well served by the Lord over the years to look at scriptures that point us in this direction. James wrote, Consider it all joy, my brethren, not if, but when you encounter various trials. They're certainly coming. Paul told the Romans, We rejoice in our tribulations in Romans 5, 3. Peter said, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. 1 Peter 4, 12. Again, God is not surprised by the coronavirus. God is not unnerved by the coronavirus. God knew about it long before you and I were ever born. But His his expectation for us His expectation for his beloved children is not to be surprised either. He not only expects, but he informs and equips and comforts and counsels us to respond to this societal trial differently than the world does. We have confidence that God is in control, that he's good, and that he's doing something that the world doesn't understand. My goal this morning is to help all of us be comforted and equipped to live as Paul told Titus. Just listen to his words in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, announcing the glorious gospel, instructing us, listen, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. That's sober-minded, with self-control, with perspective righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. He has instructed us both in how to respond to a negative world and worldview and how to enter into that world living righteously, living above reproach, living with a godly perspective, with sensibilities and sensibly as we deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So... In the next few minutes, the next few moments, as you likely sit around your computers and or televisions or tablets or phones with your coffee and perhaps perhaps in your pajamas, I want to help us think theologically and to think practically about our response to the coronavirus and frankly any trial that you may be facing this morning. I'm very aware that there are so many people in our world who are facing trials without the perspective that you and I are able to share. I'm also very aware that there are trials in our own church body that people are experiencing and facing this morning that are way beyond just the concerns about a virus. God has equipped us and God has helped us. The title for this morning, uniquely enough, is God and the coronavirus, a believer's response to difficulty. In 1981, a very interesting book swept the nation, became a bestseller. I remember having it as an assignment when I was in college. It was a book that described, was described in reviews as touching, heartwarming, wise, compassionate. It was written by a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner, and it was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The book was a rational attempt to bring sense to suffering. It actually deals with a theological category called theodicy. Now, theodicy is trying to understand a righteous and good and holy and sovereign God in the midst of a suffering and evil world. 
The classic theodicy problem goes like this. There are three propositions that cannot exist together. In fact, these three propositions, uh, theologians and philosophers tell us, you can have two of them, but you can't have all three. What are the three? God is good. God is all-powerful. And evil and suffering exist. So they would say, if God is good and evil exists, that's because he's, because he's not all-powerful and can do anything about it. Or others would say, no, God is all-powerful and evil exists because he's not good. Or some actually say God is good and God is all-powerful. And as the Christian scientists would tell us, evil does not exist, which is a radical and a perverse thought. Rabbi Kushner took the view in his book that God is good, evil exists, but he's not powerful enough, sovereign enough to actually do anything about the forces on the earth and regarding suffering and evil that are frankly out of control and out of his control. In that book, Kushner asked, can you accept the idea that some things happen for no reason, that there is randomness in the universe? He further comments that things such as earthquakes or tornadoes, hurricanes, diseases, other human, uh, other natural disasters are sometimes called acts of God on insurance policies. He says, quote, I consider uh, that a case of using God's name in vain. I don't believe that an earthquake that kills thousands of innocent victims without reason is an act of God. It is an act of nature. Nature is morally blind, without values. It churns along, following its own laws and not caring who or what gets in the way, end quote. That reasoning reflects accurately a postmodern mindset about theodicy. Randomness, randomness, luck, chance, fate have become sovereign over the events of people. They've even become sovereign over people. But to say that randomness or luck or chance or fate have some kind of control or power over anything is the worst of all idols and the most subtle of all heresies and blasphemies. Why? Because there's no such thing as chance or fate or luck or randomness in God's universe, they don't exist. Belief in such is nothing less than asking God to get off his throne and let nothing take over. You understand that nothing is made up of two words, no thing. I think it's our conviction as believers who honor God's word and believe it to be true. Yes, evil and tragedy exist. Suffering exists. Pandemics happen Disease spreads. Yes, God is infinite in his goodness. Yes, God is almighty and sovereign over his universe. But we would add one more proposition. God is infinitely wise in ways that we don't always understand and cannot always see. Well, back to the book of Lamentations. A little background, the book of Lamentations is uh, it's one of those places for many people where the pages are still stuck together in their Bible. It, it's, it's not a, a magnet for people's quiet times, although it ought to be, honestly. It's a poetical depiction of the horrible atrocities that fell on Jerusalem as a city and the nation of Israel, or Judah specifically uh, in particular, uh, around the events of 587 BC. Babylon's army had invaded the city of God under Nebuchadnezzar's uh, rule and instruction. They had ransacked the, Jeru- uh, the capital of, of the nation, Jerusalem. They had destroyed its architecture, kidnapped its people. And Jeremiah the prophet, after having warned the people for decades that this was coming, should they not repent writes this book, sitting on the Mount of Olives as he retreats, watching over the Kidron Valley as the ruins of Jerusalem fall apart and the Temple Mount is on fire. And he pens Lamentations. It's perhaps the saddest book in the Bible. Forty years, 40 years Jeremiah 
suffers rejection and abuse and warnings because he warned the people of the coming judgment. And then finally, it happened. 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. And you know, a lesser man might have retreated and said, I I told you so, but not Jeremiah. The city is burning, it's being pillaged, it's being brought to ruins. The prophet composes then this book. It's a series of five beautiful and compassionate poems. They really function as a funeral dirge for the once proud Jerusalem. If you read Lamentations, you will find really the, the, the tender side of what had previously been the fiery prophet. It reflects the heart of a man who was divinely commissioned to preach a, a difficult and harsh, harsh message to a sinful and stiff-necked people. The book of Jeremiah actually is the prophecy that looked ahead. The book of Lamentations is the funeral dirge and the mourning that looks back. Lamentations is an intensely interesting book because it's the most emotional, autobiographical information we get from any of the prophets. And in looking at it, we're confronted with the undaunted reality of God's absolute sovereignty. Let me just give us a head start into this chapter before we land in our text that we're going to be looking at. Remember the context. Jeremiah is sitting perhaps on the Mount of Olives looking across as Jerusalem is burning, as he's watching the armies steal the implements of the, of the temple and bring it to a leveling position. Jeremiah, excuse me, Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah says, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Listen to his angst. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He's caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Verse 8. Even when I cry out for help. He shuts out my prayer. I wonder if you've ever felt that way, where you, you feel like you're, you're praying over and over and you're wondering if those, those words actually go beyond the ceiling. He's blocked out my ways with hewn stone. He's made my path crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He's turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as the target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. I've become a laughingstock to all my people. They're mocking song all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunk with wormwood. He's, made my, he's broken my teeth with gravel. He's made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace I have forgotten happiness. Maybe the darkest place anyone can find themselves is the admission, I am so dark and so depressed in spirit. I've forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. He had, he had gone in such a, into such a dark place that He wondered if God even cared or heard. Then verse 19, the word, remember. Remember. Remember my affliction and my wandering, wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. But this, verse 21, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. He is preaching to himself, bringing truth to bear. Things that he has known in the past now begin to echo in his mind and speak to his own soul. What does he say to himself? The Lord's loving kindnesses. Look at the plural. Many expressions of his loving kindness. They never cease. His compassions, they never fail. In fact, they're new every morning. Great, awesome, abundant is 
your faithfulness. See how he turns from talking about God to talking to God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. That's quite a difference from verse 18, where he says, I have no hope from the Lord. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is help. Learn the lessons of going through intense suffering. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord, look at this good news, will not reject forever for if he causes grief then he God will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness for he does not afflict willingly capriciously or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the most high to defraud a man in his lawsuit of these things the Lord does not approve Then come verses 37, 38, and 39. All are rhetorical questions. They're all questions in the Hebrew as well as the English. They are questions, the only questions in the chapter. And in a sense, this is at the midway point of the second poem. All of the first two and a half poems lead to these three questions. And all of the the rest of this poem and the last two flow from these three questions. But in reality, these are, these are not so much questions as they are statements in the form of a question. We all understand this. Men especially understand this. When your wife says to you, are you going to wear that shirt with those pants? That is not a question, brothers. That is a statement. When my father would ask me, Rick, Who is going to take the trash to the curb? That wasn't a question. That was him telling me to take the trash to the curb. In a similar way, these three questions become theological reminders for times of trouble. So we're going to kind of outline this passage by looking together at three theological reminders for times of trouble. Surround surround these, these principles around the three questions. And I trust these can be things that you can talk about with your your spouse, with your friends, with your family as we finish today. The first theological reminder for times of trouble is in verse 37. God is sovereign over people. We won't spend a lot of time here because this is not in particular the application that is, it flows from this passage for, for the pandemic we're experiencing, but it should and, and certainly ought to guide our understanding of people and how they interact with us. And even our own dealings with others. God is sovereign over people. He asked the question in verse 37. Who, there's the person. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? And then the all important writer at the end of that question. Unless the Lord has commanded it. The point that Jeremiah is making is no person can act without God's knowledge and without God's sanction. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What about free will? What about human responsibility? What about human choice? Those are real issues in terms of the choices we make, but it no way undermines God's sovereignty over them. This is a mystery we will never understand till heaven. Man is absolutely morally responsible for every decision they make, even when they're evil decisions. But God is absolutely sovereign still over everything that happens. He is never out of control, in other words. Specifically, what is this talking about? The Babylonians, they are the who. The Babylonians had threatened Judah for a long time. They had said, they had spoken over and over, we're coming, we're going to take Jerusalem over. But were they truly in charge by that pronouncement, by that threat? Jeremiah says, no. God was behind their threats. God was behind their words. God was behind their evil intended actions without being responsible for any evil. 
Note the direction of the verse is towards the words and actions of people. No one can act without God's sovereign approval. That's the point of the last part of the verse. Does not, again, mean that God is in any way responsible for sin, which is involved, but he is behind the words and actions of everyone, using them even from their malintent. God still is in control of using them for the good and good purposes of his people. Remember Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? Joseph told his brothers who had malintent toward him, sold him into slavery, who got rid of him, who did the worst evil they could have toward Joseph and toward their father, maybe even worse than just killing him. He says to them in the very end, after a reconciliation, men, brothers, you meant your action for evil, but God meant it for good. Understand what's going on there. There's a massive theological paradigm shift for us to consider. They had evil intent. They did evil, but God used their evil for Joseph's good. How do you view the actions of others? Are you keenly aware that everyone all the time in every action, everyone all the time in every action, is being used by God for his glory and your good, no matter how good or bad those actions appear to be. Again, Romans 8, 28, we've studied it so many times. It's a pillar as well. God uses all things for good to those who are his children. And listen, friends, we may not always experience or understand the good in the moment, but God is working about good that we might not understand and cannot see. No one can do and no one can say anything to you that God does not ordain and allow, and that should bring hope and not despair. Who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? God is still in control, not responsible for moral evil, but using even evil, morally motivated, morally applied, badly spoken, bad intentions of others. He still can use that, will use that for the good of those who know and love him. God is sovereign over people. Verse 38, though, shifts into a second theological reminder for troubling times that I think is particularly applicable to us in this uh, pandemic that we're experiencing. God is sovereign over circumstances. God is sovereign over circumstances. Verse 38, he asks a second question. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill... That's, that's such a, 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 a sterilized translation. It literally is good and evil, ra'ah. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and evil go forth? How can this say what it says? You can tell it made the translators uncomfortable so they changed it to ill or calamity. It's not saying that God is morally culpable for evil. It just says that nothing is out from under his sovereign control, even those evil things that happen because of an evil world with evil people. They don't have power over God. No circumstance can happen without God's consent, without God's decree. Notice that we move from the speaking of people in verse 37 to the speaking of God in verse 38. The mouth of the Most High. The Puritans had a saying that went like this, God is too wise to err and too good to be unkind in his actions, end quote. Now for a moment, can you just return with me over to the book of Job for a minute? Because this same word and the same formulation, good and evil, good and ill, uh, blessing and calamity, show up exactly in the same uh, uh, phraseology in the book of Job. In in Job chapter 1, I'm just reminded of of the, if you want a life verse, this would be a good one. Job 1, 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. Listen to this reputation. A man who was fearless, blameless rather, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. If you want to have a great family devotion, 
this afternoon with your, with your family, with your friend, that is a fantastic verse to memorize, to, to meditate on as a, as a goal for who we all should be and the reputation we should be garnering. You know the story, and you know it well. They are, the, the kids all getting together, 10 kids are getting together uh, probably at the, in, on the birthday of the oldest born. It was on his day in verse um, 13, the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And then a succession of four messengers come to Job. And this all would have happened if we time it out likely within the span of a minute, within the span of of, of 60 seconds. A messenger came to Job, verse 14, and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. The Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. This was Job's property. These were Job's friends. These were Job's employees. They were attacked by a group called the Sabaeans. Overtaken. Goods stolen. Employees killed. Now, notice the phrase in verse 16. While he was still speaking, he hadn't even finished telling the story. Another also came and said, Lightning, the fire of God, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So, so picture this, whether Job is outdoors or whether Job is inside, coming through the door are these four messengers. One comes and says, this happened, it was a tragic tragedy. You lost possessions, you lost friends, you lost servants, you lost employees. Another one, before he can even finish that report, says another tragedy happened. Verse 17, while this second messenger was speaking... Another came also and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, took them and slew the servants. More murders with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job can't catch his breath. Three men in succession without even being able to finish their report are interrupted by someone with even worse news. And then verse 18. While the third, while he was still speaking, another came and said, your sons and daughters, and that must have pierced Job, likely his wife with him. With the sobriety of what was happening, with the successive reports of these tragedies, and now this fourth comes in and says, your sons and your daughters also came and told him that they were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness. It came from one direction, interestingly, and struck the four corners of the house. Experts tell us this was likely a tornadic event. It came from one direction, but hit the house all four corners, which would indicate a, a spinning cyclone that would hit all four corners, northwest, east, and south at the same time. It fell on the young people and they died. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshiped. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, the narrator tells us in verse 22, Job did not. Sin, nor did he blame God. As if that weren't enough, Satan goes back, interacts with God, and is unsatisfied with Job's losses and his suffering, so asks for access to Job physically and personally, and God grants it to him. One of the mysteries of all mysteries God grants Satan access to Job and his health. He struck with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. These were infectious boils. Some medical theologians say likely shingles 
painful, so bad that to get relief from these sores, he was actually taking a broken piece of pottery and shaving off these sores full of pus to relieve the pressure. His wife comes to him in this state. Verse 9, it says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Another way of saying, I know better of you. Shall we not, shall we accept rather good from God and not accept ra'ah? Evil. Same exact words, same exact formulation as in our text in Lamentations. He's not saying God is, in charge, is responsible for moral evil. He's just saying evil that I encounter over the next uh, 30 chap- plus chapters, the evil that I encounter, I- I'm sure I deserve because I'm a sinful man in a sinful world and I, I deserve the-, the judgment and wrath of God. How can I accept the blessing of 10 children and wife, lots of servants, lots of employees, lots of friends, lots of riches and And yet when God takes it, why would I complain? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. With his lips is important. He didn't didn't formulate a philosophy of rebellion against God in his calamity, in his suffering, in his sickness. Back to Lamentations chapter 3. Listen, we all need to make a choice this morning, either we believe in a God who is in absolute, complete, sovereign control over his universe, or you have a God who has problems and limitations. The Bible is crystal clear. This verse is absolutely verbatim clear that God is sovereign. He exercises care over all of his creation for his glory and the good of his people. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and seas and all the deeps. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In 1 Chronicles 29, 12, God is called the ruler of all things, the blessed and only ruler in 1 Timothy 6, 15. He is such a sovereign and loving and caring ruler over his universe that not even a bird can die and fall to the ground without his knowledge and permission. Matthew 10, 29, and 31 says. Nebuchadnezzar would be humbled in the future from his pride, especially of ransacking Jerusalem. And in his theological reflection in Daniel 4, he said, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He bestows it on whomever he wishes, verse 17 says. He sets it over the lowliest of men. He is sovereign. The God of Israel is the ruler and the sovereign one. Down in verse 35, he reflects, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. Among all the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Ecclesiastes, Solomon concludes, Consider the work of God, all that he does. Who is able to straighten what he has bent? So, when God allows a crooked event in our lives, both personal or pandemic, are you at the point where you understand that only he can straighten it out? Know this. Remember this. God's truth is never dependent on our personal experience on our feelings. Just because we don't feel like God is in control does not budge him from his throne. So many times, and it's, 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 it's a good time to reflect on this again. We, we learned when we were studying the book of Romans in chapter five that Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings and then he uses the word knowing and then he explains what God is doing behind the curtain of our suffering. And we formulated that to say knowing is so important because we typically make our decisions about how we're going to respond intuitively, instinctively, based on our feelings. So asking the three questions, what do I feel, what do I think, what do I know, what do I believe, where is my faith 
anchor. That's where hope, that's where trust, that's where perspective comes from. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Same thing James said, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, God is doing things behind the scenes that he wants us to know. It's amazing to me when God, when God tempted or tested rather Abraham in Genesis 22 and said, I, I want you to go kill your only son. The text tells us that God was testing Abraham, but Abraham didn't know that. When there's these conversations in Job in heaven between Satan and God about allowing these turmoils to come on Job, Job didn't know that. We're different than Abraham. We're different than Job. We understand from the pandemic, from our personal struggles, that God is in control and that he's doing something And what he's doing is for our good. It's because of his care. He's sovereign over circumstances. He's sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over birds and sparrows and every microscopic bug and virus. The movement of planets and solar systems and solar flares and galaxies. But how can we, back to our verse, how can we say that evil, that calamity, ill, are from God? This is a question that has riddled the church for centuries, but I think we can get a handle on it by thinking along two lines. First, remember that we all deserve hell and judgment. Our starting place should be, we don't deserve any blessing. We don't deserve any health. The wages of sin is death. So when we see threats that could take our lives, it should not surprise us. That's what we deserve. And the fact that we're not in hell and the fact that we are not experiencing more suffering and the fact that we know and believe the gospel is such a grace that we do not deserve Also, we need to remember that being a child of God changes everything. It changes our understanding and our interaction interaction with evil in the world. There's nothing that God does not use for our good. Think about that. There is nothing God does not use for our good. Said another way, he causes all things to work together for our good. We've talked about many times that in, when you read a book, uh, it's not the book that changes your life. It's the sentence. It's the paragraph. And there's one of those paragraphs in a book I've been reading uh, very slowly and intentionally. In fact, I don't remember reading a book this slowly in a long time. Uh, Terry Johnson's uh, book on the identity and attributes of God. And he has this, this, this small paragraph. Listen to what he says. Whether life brings prosperity or poverty well-being or disaster, health or disease, longevity or death, never am I facing a random, meaningless event. I am, and this is not a typo, he says, I am always, always, always dealing with God. He, in turn, is always dealing with me. Whether my circumstances may be positive or negative, easy or difficult, I am always dealing with my almighty father and he is always dealing with his beloved child, end quote. Do you believe that we are always, always, always dealing with God and he is always good? And always cares about his children. God, in the midst of the coronavirus and your own personal struggles, no matter what they may be, God has never for one nanosecond, the smallest unit of time that you can can mark, he has never, ever, ever, ever left his sovereign throne over the universe or over your life. God is sovereign over people. 
God is sovereign over circumstances. There's a third question that brings us a third theological reminder. God is serious about our response. God is serious about our response. Look at verse 39. Why then, third question, why should any person, any living mortal or any man, he describes this as mortals and any man, offer complaint in view of his sins? Complaining about what? People in circumstances that are, that are having evil effects on our life. Why, how should any of us complain about that? In view of our sins. This goes back to a, a Christian's bedrock foundation of understanding theologically what we deserve. Here's the point. No sinner should ever complain about the sovereign providence of God when we understand his holiness and our sinfulness. I think we need a hard reset on our perspective about what we really deserve. Paul reminds us, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in the gospel in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then back in chapter 5 of Romans, he says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. I thought a lot about this in the last week that we, we live in a unique time in history. No, 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 no person, no, no culture has ever lived in a world like we do with antibiotics and penicillin, with, with uh, uh, surgery and, and with uh, the ability to mend bones and, and do uh, orthoscopic surgery and orthopedic surgery. And it, it's, it's incredible the the medical advances that we are able to enjoy. We have to be careful though. And by the way, praise God that we live in a world with antibiotics and in a world with antivirals and in a world with medical uh, care and advances. Praise almighty God that we live in a world where a cut might not be as life-threatening as it was in the time of the Bible writers. But I think we have to be careful that the medical advances that we enjoy don't lull us to sleep about the inevitability of our own deaths that we might think we are postponing but will certainly come to all of us because of our sin. Psalm 90 and Psalm 139 both tell us that every single day we have is numbered. Not one of us had control of the day of our birth, and God has control of the day of our entering into eternity. God's serious about our response. So what, what I'd like to do is just be very, very practical for a moment and talk about some takeaways. What, 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 how do we look at these three questions? How do we look at the coronavirus? How do we look at the trial that we're in individually and the trial that we're in as a culture, and, and this, this affects all of us at different levels. Some of you are unable to work. Some of you will be unable to receive a paycheck because of this virus. Some of you are unable to, to work at your workplace. You're going to be uh, sequestered at home. Some of you may end up contracting this virus. This has impact on all of us. It has impact on our own fellowship that we're, we're not enjoying this morning. So what is your plan? What are the takeaways from these three, three um, uh, questions that Jeremiah forms and the statements that he intends for us to, to understand? What, what do we take away from that? Well, before we get into a little list that I've created, look at the next verse. Let us examine, verse 40, examine and probe our ways. Let's, let's do some self-evaluation and let us return to the Lord. That's another way of saying, let's push reset with who God is, what God thinks, what God has said in his word. Let's return to the Lord. Let's make sure that our thinking about one another, our thinking about disease, our thinking about sickness, our thinking about health is reset by the Lord. You know, a month ago, if you were experiencing good health, you were probably not praying much. I hope some of you were. 
and thanking God for the, the good health and the respite from suffering that you were enjoying. But now instantly, all of our concerns are thinking about our health. Let's return to the Lord who gives us seasons of health but is also sovereign over every disease and suffering. And should any of us contract any virus, should any of us contract any cancer cells, should any of us contract anything that would be life-threatening, in a wreck, in an accident, you name it, we must remember what we deserve. And that God has graciously given us the gospel in exacting contrast to what we should receive. So a few takeaways I think we need to remember. The first is to anchor your perspective in God's character. Anchor your perspective as you're thinking about this virus and other calamities. Anchor your perspective in God's character. We've said this many times. It's it's one of those sentences sentences that has been life-changing for me. Horatius Bonner said, Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Listen again. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty, us being distempered about that, uncomfortable with that, our dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. If we are under the sovereign control of a, of a malevolent evil deity, we should be disliking that and we should be in despair, but we're not. God is good. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. God is wise. Job 12, 13. With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. We get our perspective from him. Job 12, 13. Romans 16, 27 calls God the only wise God. So God is good, God is wise. Also, we remember that God is in control. 1 Chronicles 29, 12, both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all and in your hand is power and might and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So it's critical to remember that our perspective has to be rooted in who God is and what he's like and not to think of him other or otherly or differently than he truly is. Second, we need to anchor our, anchor our understanding in God's providence. Anchor our understanding in God's providence, His sovereignty. If we truly believe in God's providence, His sovereign rule over the planet, if we truly believe God is in sovereign control over every circumstance, which I trust you do, we will look differently at people, differently at events, differently at opportunities, differently at even difficulties, differently at the coronavirus that he puts in our path. Remember, no circumstance comes into our life by chance. God is good. God is providentially sovereign and in control. And he has equipped us with everything we need for this trial. And he intends a good purpose in it for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans eight twenty eight. In his classic book, um, The Mystery of Providence, John Flavel wrote this, Providence is wiser than you, and you may be confident it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could have done had it been left to your option, end quote. Are you confident that God has suited every providential event in our lives to our good? You know, to think anything else is is madness. It's discouraging. There's no hope. Jerry Bridges explains, in order to trust God, in order to trust God, we must always view our adverse circumstances through the eyes of faith not of sense. 
It is only in the scriptures that we find an adequate view of God's relationship to and involvement in our painful circumstances. So we, we throw around the phrase God is sovereign sometimes too, too glibly and too, too um, flippantly and too carelessly without stopping to really ask our souls if it's anchored in God's sovereign providence. And nothing, nothing, nothing in our lives is accidental or by chance, even our encountering the threat of this virus. A third takeaway. Anchor your anxiety to God's care. Anchor your anxiety to God's care. Philippians 4 is so precious. That is, I'm sure, familiar and well-worn real estate in your own Bible. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Be happy in Christ. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for, say it, nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. Be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which is what all of us want in this time of turmoil, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. It won't make sense to the world. But the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your hearts. It will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what we all need in a fearful time? And then his practical application. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is of lovely, of, of good reputation and anything excellent and worthy of praise, dwell, let your mind dwell on these things. Similarly, in Psalm 56, the psalmist writes, when I am afraid, listen to this, when I am afraid, not if, when I am afraid, Psalm 56.3, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? I've spoken to several in our church body who are, quite frankly, understandably uh, uh, fearful, understandably uh, afraid. Um, and there's a great need to, to be cautious. We have... We have vulnerable uh, folks with their health in our, in our church body. We have shut-ins who are very susceptible to any kind of, uh, of disease because of their immunosuppressants. But when we're afraid, we can trust God. We can put our trust in Him. We cannot, cannot maintain fear if we have a right view of God. For a believer, fear is dissolved by meditating on God's character and remembering his providential care for us. I love Psalm 68, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. And in this time of anxiety and fear, can, can I please graciously remind you that anxiety and fear are sins from which God's word calls us to repent. Listen, be wise. Wash your hands. Cover your mouth when you cough. Disinfect your house. We've certainly disinfected the church. But we trust God. We trust God. Because he's good and he's wise and he cares and he works all things for our good. He is for us, Paul says, not against us. And then lastly, let's anchor our action to service. Anchor your action to service. I've been so blessed this week. I'll tell you, this is one of those, those weeks as a pastor, you just push back from the desk and marvel at what God is doing in the life of our church.
We've had so many people, I have emails in my inbox from a number of you who are actively looking for ways to serve those in need in our church, who are not saying, how can I be restricted from those who might be infected, but quite the opposite are saying, who needs groceries? Who needs yard work done? Who needs an errand run? Who's a shut-in? Let me go serve. What a great relief and release. God's in control of your cellular makeup. Anchor your action to service. Listen, we do have many shut-ins who have daily needs. We have families who are hit hard financially by this virus. They have no ability to work. We have needs for errands to be run, groceries to be bought, our church physically to be not cleaned but disinfected, which are two different things. Will you step up at risk to serve? Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 10, each has received a special gift. Employ it, serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You have been given the stewardship of the grace of God in your giftedness, in your inclinations, in your service. Use it for him and use it for the the good and the glory of your, of your God with your neighbors and with the body of Christ. Galatians 5.13 You were called to freedom, brethren. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What an interesting passage. If you're going to have extra time at home, don't use it for sinful pursuits, but use your extra time for serving the children of God. Stop complaining, stop questioning, start serving. Let us examine and probe our ways and return to the Lord. God is sovereign over time, history. God is sovereign over kings and presidents, over viruses and bacteria. He's sovereign over every detail in his vast universe, planets and solar systems and galaxies and Satan and suffering and salvation, our sanctification, our future hope, eternity. God is in loving, caring, good, sovereign control over it all. Last week, I, uh, this past week rather, several of my friends posted something in social media that, that caught my attention and uh, I, I found it a particular blessing to me and I trust it will you as well. It was a quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was writing some, some 72 years ago specifically about the threat that England lived under regarding the atomic bomb And what he said was so refreshing to me. So I'm going to read the quote for you, the paragraph. But when I say atomic bomb, in your own mind, you can insert coronavirus. Okay? Lewis says, In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in such an atomic age? I am tempted to reply why, as you would, have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a, on a, Viking, in a Viking age when the raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or as you have are, are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, C.S. Lewis says, Do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented or the uh, coronavirus came into existence. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, We have that still. It is still perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which is already bristling with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. 
And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb come when it comes finding us doing sensible and human things. Praying and working and teaching and reading and listening to music and bathing the children and playing tennis and chatting to our friends over a drink and game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, which the coronavirus can do, but they need not dominate our minds. It's a great perspective. Where are your thoughts? What are your anchors? Sickness and death are intended by God to be our teachers. J.C. Ryle says, Sickness is meant to teach us that there is a world beyond the grave and that that world we now live in is only a training place for another dwelling where there will be no decay, no sorrow, no tears, no misery, and no sin. That is only possible if, if you have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because no matter what happens in this world, those who love and know the Savior have a hope after death. This life is just a dot in eternity. Forever is forever. And to be forgiven for your sins through the, the substitutionary death of Christ being punished for them on the Roman cross. To have hope for your future because of his resurrection from the dead. To have an anchor of believing and living because of the gospel is the best response any of us can have to these trying days. I trust that God's word has and can speak to your heart. I trust that these are times when your family and your friends and those in the church and our body will, will huddle up and rally around God and his truth. And this will be an occasion for us to serve and suffer and not be tempted to sequester and worry. Be smart. Be wise, be responsible, be holy, and be suffering. Because God is glorified through our service in the midst of all of that. Even our suffering. Sin, anxiety, or fears, trust and hope are gifts that he gives to all those who will believe what he said. Anchor yourself in a loving and caring and good Savior. Let me pray for us.